0: CHAPTER Twelve OF MURDER AT ST. DENIS BY MARGARET ANNE HUBBARD This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Trice. Indian summer abandoned the hills for good in the night. Morning came dismally, under a grey sky, and over ragged veils of fog trailing the valleys. In the hospital corridors the lights burned without dispelling the gloom, but the day was beginning dr kingston coming up from the basement floor stepped back to avoid meeting the procession of two sister magdalen with her lighted candle and her tinkling silver bell the young priest in white vestments bringing communion to the patients king nearly always managed to escape the halls at such a time this morning particularly he was disgusted with his blundering up the stairs but his mind had been on marmion and the invention of a casual errand that might take him to the laboratory Once there he would consider what to do about an apology for his boorishness of last night. He was further incensed at Marmion, then, for the distraction that brought him face to face with Sister Magdalene. He had not seen her since the night before last, when he had heaped such bitter censure upon her. They passed on by, the priest's robes rustling softly. He was very young, recently ordained, still looking starved from his seminary days, a mere assistant at the cathedral in Balsam City, no wonder Magdalen had not consulted him about the moral problem involved in Cassidy's legacy. No wonder she had Johnny drive into the city to consult the bishop last night, as if she remained in doubt. King's lips made a derisive plop, but the derision was difficult to maintain. When he continued on up the stairs, his head was not high like a conqueror's, and he did not go to the lab. Sister Magdalen tried not to be disconcerted by the sight of the doctor, she had been worried, naturally, by his outburst, and more than ever by his avoidance of her yesterday. She had mentioned it to the bishop last night. Has she been lax? she asked, bringing in an unknown to the staff and to the inner life of the hospital, with so little investigation as she had made. The bishop had kindly set forth all the arguments she had already thought out in self-defense. A hospital such as St. Denis was lucky indeed to have a resident physician and surgeon, His brilliant record in the past six years proved she had judged him rightly as a doctor, and as a man he had behaved himself. His past actually did not matter. And then they had gone on to the urgent problem of Cassidy's money. It was still a problem. She must decide for herself, the bishop had said. There was no moral reason why she should not accept the gift. Cassidy had based his fortune on wrongdoing in the early days, but there was no possible manner in which he could make restitution now except as the great man had indicated. A fine hospital would benefit all the people of the hills. Ringing her little bell, the sister walked slowly on, and even for her, preoccupied as she was, the healer walked again among the sick, comforting and restoring. An inch at a time, without a betraying creak of the springs, Marmion pushed herself cautiously out of bed, listening, halting at every tiny slide of the sheet's. Eloise's breathing was a steady, comfortable sound, one you'd wish might go on through the grey day this promised to be. There was barely light enough for Marmion to grope for her clothes. The luminous face of her watch set the hour as a little after six. Plenty of time, before anyone stirred, to run downstairs to the telephone. Ellie had been so very firm about not calling the sheriff last night. "'You're too tired,' marmie she had insisted. "'Call that old buckaroo, and he'll be out here half the night.' What would you gain? Nothing but lost sleep. The thing will keep till morning. So together, Eloise and Marmion had left the laboratory, hustling through the black little passage, and in the hall they had met Dixie coming up with a request slip. Again, Eloise had taken the lead, determined that Dixie would summon Sister Judy, who was supposed to be on night call, and she had piloted Marmion up to the crow's nest. Always Eloise, a wonderful friend." Marmion carried her uniform out to the sitting room so the starchy slipping on of it would not arouse Ellie. She would have to make one more trip into the bedroom. She had left the marriage certificate under her pillow. The sheriff might want to read it, word for word. The floor complained when she stepped in between the beds, but Ellie was too deeply asleep to be disturbed. In a few minutes the alarm would go off and she would awake, groaning and sighing, as if she climbed up from the bottomless pit. No one, so far as Marmion knew, had seen her when she tiptoed along the rubber matting and over to the stairs, the long envelope poking up out of her pocket, and the corset box under her arm. She would go to Sister Magdalene's office, only the office telephone was on a private line. All the others were on one extension, and anyone could listen in. At this hour she would have to route the sheriff out of bed, but he wouldn't mind when he heard what she had to tell him, and then she would deliver the corset, at last, to Sister Peter. Sister Magdalene's little bell tinkled off in the wing where Big Balsam had died, but Marmion met no one. The small office was grey and deserted as she came into it. She would not turn on the light. Someone might recall an errand, seeing a lighted office. So she walked in, into the quiet and the faint chill that always seems to hang in deserted places. And then she did something she never could explain. She pulled up in the top drawer of the filing cabinet and dropped the envelope in among the folders. Even she could not have put her hand instantly upon it, after that. Marmion smiled as she perched on the edge of the desk and took up the telephone. The sheriff had gone extremely early to his office. His wife was thankful to see him at last. He had not slept. He would not eat. He had talked until midnight about the secrecy surrounding Jock's marriage. It had taken place in a county at the other end of the state, which was why the fact had not been unearthed earlier. And after the tragedy of her house burning down the young wife had completely disappeared and if this was not enough there was the alarming possibility that cardinal's daughter had returned someone within mannering's hearing had called cassidy a murderer not that quite a handful of other people couldn't say the same the sheriff had surmised at three minutes to twelve but let me find those two women and i'll be satisfied I'd imagine the grandmother would want Cardinal's baby to have all the nice things she could give her. His wife said pensively, I know I would, to try to make up for what she couldn't ever have. Sure thing, the sheriff replied, with the indifference of a man who often pursues unrelated subjects with mind and tongue. Like music, the wife continued. She appeared to be half asleep, stretched out in her chair with her feet on a hassock, one of the last batch of kittens curled in her lap sitting upright she would have no lap music is nice for a girl i've never seen anything prettier than a girl playing the violin the sheriff suddenly began to listen how does this go again lucy but her answer seemed to be off on another tangent would jock's wife have a motive for murdering cassidy she could have he'd done jock out of a lot of money he'd done jock's father out of the money wasn't that it jock ought to be used to the idea by this time even though his wife She paused absently, stroking the kitten's pencil of a tail. Cardinal's daughter would have a swell motive. Even a jury would sympathize with her while they set her in the chair. And Jock's wife played the violin, she added. I bet she had a good fiddle too. And you think maybe Cardinal's daughter played the fiddle? Lucy nodded sagely. Granny would have seen to it that she had music. Lordy Lord, the sheriff sighed. His fatigue couldn't keep him in his chair. He sprang up and began to pace the floor. He made several turns before he stopped before his wife. So you think the daughter and Jock's wife? I think they're the same one. She straightened, the kitten rolled over, and she caught it in her cup palm. Then she got up and carried it out to its mother in the kitchen. So the sheriff sat at his desk in the very early gray morning, wondering and fitting together pieces of the puzzle. Although the two women were one, he still had to find her nobody at helbent had seen anyone who might have been mr mannering's mysterious lady that was understandable if aggravating there had been many outsiders from balsam city coming to the helbent offices around that time collectors for the community fund the red cross ticket sellers for all the fall festival suppers of the various churches if the young woman was also jock's wife then that would put her at the hospital because it would explain jock's protection of her but no one at the hospital, other than the orderly, was named Turner. The sheriff sat motionless, seeing the snow come down like drifting tissue paper, the initial touch of a winter that would leave cattle starving in the ravines. His wife had done this sort of deducing on other cases. Early in his career, he had endeavored to find out how she did it. He had given up. When the telephone rang, he jumped, glancing at the clock. A few minutes after six. He had been sitting here for over an hour. Hello, he said into the phone. It was too early to be official. Honey, is that you? Sure is, Lucy. Listen, I've just had a call from the P.S. girl. Marmion, is it? I think she's in trouble. She called the house? Well, of course, it's so early. She asked for you. And then when I said you were at the office, she said something about, Yes, doctor, she'd attend to it right away so I said for her to never mind trying to call you, I'd do it, and send you straight up there. Good work, Lucy, I'm on my way. All right, but listen, honey, have you had your breakfast? All this on an empty stomach. I'm fine, lovey, goodbye. The sheriff was on his feet as he dropped the telephone back in the cradle. Opening the door, he nearly scuffed aside the telegram which lay on the floor below the mail slot. It hadn't been there when he came in. Or had it. He tore it open, grunted his satisfaction as he read. Guy Murray Kingston, according to the Navy, has spent two years in prison. Charges, jumping ship and insubordination. He had been released six years ago, whereabouts unknown. But not unknown to the sheriff. The doctor comes straight from his prison cell to his own voluntary confinement in the old hospital of St. Denis of the Hills. Marmion sat for a long time on the edge of the desk in Sister Magdalene's office. No one entered. The sheriff's wife, blessedly, had realized the emergency indicated by her mumbled foolishness and made it unnecessary for her to say a great deal. The sheriff would come as fast as he could cover the three miles around the mountain from Balsam City, but would that be in time? Would the white shoulder, just glimpsed outside the door, materialize into someone who would dart swiftly in, slam the heavy oak barrier shut, and then go leisurely about the task of murder. She sat there so long that when she finally slid to her feet, pins and needles jabbed up through her soles. I'll meet it, she decided. Whatever is waiting there, I'll meet it. It was almost an anticlimax to come to the door, look out into vacancy, hear the first clatter of trays being prepared in the kitchen, the first radio blatting the news. Leaning against the door jamb, Marmion began to laugh. That would never do, Someone would see her, ask her what was the matter, and she must get away from the office, where the marriage certificate lay safely in the file. Once again, Sister Peter's corset was performing a function. Its delivery was taking Marmion through the old passage to Methuselah Hall, where, even at this early hour, Sister would be trudging around like a pigeon with sore feet, her head bobbing at every step, her convex glasses almost disguising the beautiful kindness of her eyes. At the end of the passage Marmion paused. She was not called here often, because these were chronic cases, but she recognized the usual morning hubbub, the old refugee from the prairie dugout demanding alcohol to drink, not rub, Barney cracking an Irish joke, faddled Mr. Larson reading the morning paper aloud, the country club, Johnny called it. Sister Peter, carrying a wash basin, came out of a ward and stopped when she saw Marmion. Her day would not end until nine, or later, this evening, "'and yet she was beginning it with placid expectation. "'Sister, this is for you,' Marmion said, offering the box. "'Mrs. Topman gave it to me nearly a week ago. "'I'm sorry I didn't get it to you sooner.' "'The sister's homely face flushed with pleasure. "'So she remembered. Thank you, dear. "'Did she happen to tell you, to mention the size?' "'Marmion searched her memory hurriedly. "'Plenty big,' she said.' "'Exactly right.' Running back through the passage and up to the crow's nest, the girl mused almost enviously upon Sister Peter's tranquillity. Did it come to you when you took the veil, or was it something you made for yourself? But tranquillity was too ethereal, too unattainable to ponder long. Ellie, she thought more practically, would be gone by this time. She didn't distrust Ellie. It would be easier, however, not meeting her— the third floor was noisy now, a girl laughing, someone running a shower, another singing the prisoner's song, a normal awakening to a new day. If Marmion had paused in the sitting room, she would have noticed that the bishop was hanging crooked on the wall. It was Eloise's tumbled bed that caught her eye. Not only was the bed tumbled, but the bottom sheet was ripped off and hung torn over the footrail. Dazedly, Marmion reached the door and saw the full turmoil of the room. The dresser drawers had been pulled out and dumped, clothes thrown out of a closet, her own bed with even the mattress crooked. She didn't have to ask herself why, or who. She knew. Eleanor Anne had come hunting for her marriage certificate. Only Eloise, she thought after a blank interval. Only Ellie had known she had the certificate. But Ellie had seen her put it under her pillow. She wouldn't tear the room apart like this. Relief flooded Marmion's tired brain. Now she could admit that she had been foolishly wrong about her roommate, especially last night, when Ellie wouldn't allow the call to the sheriff. What a wonderful thing to know there was someone to trust. With the relief, Marmion could think again. Quickly she closed the open door to the hall. No one must see the mess in here until the sheriff had come. She remembered Philippa standing in that doorway. How many nights ago? Surely more than six. And young Chad taking his finger from his mouth to remark concerning the bishop, That's my father. Poor Phil had cried. Chad was always adopting inanimate things as fathers, she said, because he didn't know what a father was. Cassidy had done that to her baby. She would kill him, she screamed, if she knew how. The house phone rang down the hall. P.S., it's for you, someone shouted. A man, felicitations. It would be the sheriff, Marmion knew, he would ask her to come downstairs, and she would tell him everything. Sister Magdalen knew she was sadly neglecting her duty that day, in an uneasy round. she had gone from one patient's room to another up to the laboratory where Marmion jumped at every footstep, and Sister Judy worked in silence into the x-ray room to help Eloise shift the heavy patient to the nursery where the baby slept like Christmas dolls anywhere but to her office and the pile of mail lying on her desk and King tramping in from time to time to see if she was there. She did not wish to meet him. Her unpreventable interview with the sheriff had been enough. Marmion Pius, he said, had at last told him a straight story, given him the marriage certificate, been as helpful as she had been hindering before. But now he was uncomfortably certain that Eleanor Ann, under cover of some other name, was here. The girls who had been in the crow's nest during the ransacking of Marmion's room seemed to have formed a conspiracy of false clues and denials. No one had heard or seen anything that someone else couldn't explain away. There had been people all over the place. The ransacker had evidently chosen a foolhardy but foolproof time for her search. "'Well, I'll have to get her from another direction, then. But I'll get her,' the sheriff swore to Sister Magdalene. "'I'm going to put more men out here, that's for sure.' and if you hear, or see, or even smell anything out of the ordinary, call me, will you? With that he had gone away. One could almost gain an illusion of peace looking out on the gently falling snow. The ponderosa pines were becoming heavy with it, their branches drooping until the wet loads slid off, and the branch snapped up again, dark among its white neighbors. Sister Magdalene watched the lovely process from the sun porch. In a minute she would go and find something to do but it was too late. She recognized the step coming in behind her. How she wished she had gone straight to the cloister. May I see you a moment, sister? Of course, King. You've been busy today. Because there was a bit of ridicule in that, she didn't answer. When the silence became cumbersome, the doctor broke it. It's not easy to talk to a person who won't look at you, sister. She turned around. King's hair was tousled. His linen rumpled, but there was something different about him. His shoulders were straight, that was one change, and he was not glowering. The sheriff told you, I see. The words were what one would expect from King, but not the manner. He was ill at ease, humble, if he understood humility. The sheriff told me what, King? About my prison record, do I lose my job? without waiting for her answer he swung impatiently to the window i didn't want you to know naturally amanda's never proud of being a jailbird you ought to understand my crime you put up with more of it than the navy could stomach insubordination they gave me two years i'll not tell you the reason i wouldn't tell the sheriff either even though i know he can dig it out for himself and i'll not ask your pardon for anything i've been or done An old priest told me once that your God provides irritations for saints in order to develop their perseverance. I remember he said he had already pushed his bishop far along towards sainthood, and I've done the same for you. So I've not been wasted. Even a negative blessing has its place. Sister Magdalene smiled faintly. I have often said you were our salvation, King, but I didn't mean. Don't obligate me further with praise. You don't owe it to me, but I have a debt to pay he wheeled, facing her belligerently. "'Whether you build your hospital is up to you. I'd do it in your place, but then I have the scruples of a skunk. If I have a streak of decency, too, would it surprise you?' "'Probably not. You can always find the good in the worst of us, can't you?' "'Well, you'll see.'" Sister Magdalene had no pious homily to deliver. Tonight she was as bleak of spirit as old Barney ever had been. Twenty-nine years ago Anthony had died, and because she could not see her way to going on without him, she had been ready to return to the mother house. Not that she would have found it impossible to bear the personal loss, but Anthony was her only entry, it seemed, into the places where money abounded. Without his help, she could not hope to build beyond the log cabin that was her hospital up near the hillbent, the small and pathetic attempt to care for the miners and their families. She had finally persuaded Sister Peter and Sister Margaret— and they had even packed their belongings and were ready to leave, when little Job Pius came with his gift. This beautiful tract on Balsam Mountain. The city would grow here, he predicted. The hospital would stand in the middle of the new boom. But more to the sister than the deed to the land was little Job's sympathetic understanding. When he left, she had gone back to her room and unpacked. The other sisters had rejoiced with tears of thankfulness. But the gift had not been given in charity. It was only a means to keep her here too busy to wonder what actually had happened to anthony there was a small sound behind her and the sister turned mr wilkins stood in the doorway his hat in his hand the new haircut giving him a briskness quite out of keeping with the sag of his shoulders under the old overcoat the coat was embossed with melted snow beginning to fall in small drops around him sister magdalen was touched by the appearance of her old friend he had always been unassuming but now there was a timid buoyancy about him as if somewhere he had found hopefulness and enthusiasm he had never chanced upon before. She smiled. The walking must be very bad, Hal. Should you have come out? It's slippery, yes. There will be accidents tonight. He hesitated, and the sister was afraid she had not sounded cordial. Do take off your wet overcoat. You're not in a hurry, surely. The old man was pleased at that. Carefully, not to soil the floor, he slid out of the coat, folded the wet side in, and laid it over a chair. I suppose I have no right to risk broken bones, that my parish would have to pay for mending, but I'd love to be out. Except for the snow, I imagine this old gulch resembles the country around Jerusalem. The valley of Hinnom, perhaps? His eyes twinkled. Ah, yes, the valley that was the model of hell for the rabbi's sermons. You know, Maggie, that valley was nothing more than the city dump. They kept fires burning in it to do away with the refuse. No doubt from the hillside the smoke and flames did look like hell." Sister Magdalene chuckled. She had seated herself in a rocker, and now she began a gentle rocking, her arms folded as if she held a baby. You're good at banishing ghosts, Hal. I've come to banish another, I hope. He sat down with his back to the window, and the snow seemed to fall around him as he went on. Big Balsam Cassidy's ghost, Maggie. She stopped rocking. His ghost is laid for me. If I could be sure of that, I'd say nothing. But... He leaned forward with kindly determination. One look at you, and I know it can't be true. If you had reached a decision you felt was binding, whether it was to take the money or not, you would be at peace. And you aren't. You believe you have turned on the legacy, of course. "'Actually, you haven't. I would guess that your bishop, being a very wise man, counseled you to follow your own inclination in regard to the money, and so you are considering again.' He paused in embarrassment, rather than uncertainty. "'I am not so wise as your bishop, you see, and I have come to offer advice, to urge you to accept Cassidy's fortune. I prayed for such an opportunity for you. I want my prayers to be answered.' sister magdalen smiled about to thank him and assure him that she had quite irrevocably made up her mind but mr wilkins's gesture stopped him let me say it out please i've never thought it was by an odd run of luck that we all came west at the same time you and cassidy and i and in the past few days i've been more convinced of it than ever our lives are meant to be lived out together one can believe in a divine plan without being a fatalist you saw the practical vision of service Cassidy made the money so you might carry out the dream before you die. What my part was meant to be, I don't know, Maggie. I do know that my regard for you has kept me in Gopher Gulch all these years. The nun wondered, for a moment, whether she had heard correctly. Mr. Wilkins had lost a shade or two of his usual healthy color, and his eyes were fixed on the wet circlet where he had stood with his overcoat dripping. But elderly ministers did not sit in some parlors speaking of lifetime affection for nuns. She had mistaken his meaning. Mr. Wilkins continued, Until yesterday I would have said that my daddy little round in Gopher Gulch amounted to zero in the general scheme of things. In fact, I did say as much to you, but then I conducted Cassidy's funeral and I realized suddenly the loneliness of everyone's passage and that there is so much loneliness because we don't know how to go about finding real friendship. Cassidy didn't. He didn't know how to make a generous gesture, beyond buying a few tickets for bazaars. "'He was the Lord's instrument, like Judas. "'I've always been sorry for Judas. "'He had to be the one to strike Father Anthony out of your life "'because you were to be enabled to build uncommon spiritual strength, "'and now the Lord is using the same instrument "'to endow you with temporal means.' "'The old man's hands were lying upon her knees, "'and he turned them suddenly palm up. "'I have not said this well, Maggie. "'The excitement of these days has tired me. "'I'll have to leave the rest to your understanding.' He rose, shrugged on the overcoat, and stood before her with his hat in his hand. "'I've brought tears,' he said gently. "'I'm sorry. Whatever I have said that needs forgiving, I know you'll forgive. Good night, Maggie.' He left her. He had never felt so tired in his life. He would go straight home and to bed, and he would sleep until his brain was perfectly clear again, and then he would think over what he had said to the sister that he should not have said." After that, perhaps, he would go back and ask her pardon properly. Although why, indeed, should he degrade by apology the affection that had been the splendid experience of his life? The old man stopped because he had run almost headlong into King. He did not know that the doctor had been watching him from the time he left the sun porch. "'You're out on a bad day, Mr. Wilkins.' "'Well, I never made a bad day, doctor. He knows we can attend to that ourselves. "'It's coffee time in the kitchen. I'm on my way down.' Come along and have a cup. Mr. Wilkins needed no persuasion. He was a little surprised that the doctor, usually brusque, should seek his company. It was, as King had said, coffee time in the kitchen. Quite a group had assembled. Mr. Wilkins knew every one of them by sight. He answered the chorus of greetings with a bow and smile, which always sufficed when he could not remember names. How pretty the women were in their white uniforms, so clean, the cook in her blue. Contrast. The strange teasing uneasiness that had been with him under the stars was back again only now it rushed over him like a dry river of dust choking out all sight and sound and even the pleasant aroma of the coffee he swayed and would have fallen except for king's hand instantly under his elbow here sir sit down get him some coffee blanche they were agog around him putting him into philippa's rocker pushing chad and his fire trucks aside to make room exclaiming in sympathy like a bunch of high school kids, instead of people who were trained to be unemotional about illness. Mr. Wilkins was disconcerted by all the attention. It had one good feature, however. The young woman who had never guessed that his sudden realization of her identity was what had set him, really. He would not look at her now, and he would decide in a minute what to do. "'Did you put some sugar in, Blanche?' the doctor was asking. "'Never mind whether he likes it. It's going to give him quick energy.' Mr. Wilkins raised his head with a faint smile. I'm only a little tired, really. I'm not ill. The excitement of yesterday, perhaps, and then the long walk. And he realized vaguely that the young woman herself seemed to be watching him with great concern. We have to begin taking things easy at our age, sir, said Johnny, who should have been in school. Now drink this, King said, putting the cup into Mr. Wilkins' hand. The old man drank it without complaint although he never took sugar in his coffee. It really was a poor brew, too bitter under the sweetness, but it made him feel stronger at once. There's nothing like coffee for a harmless stimulant, the doctor said. Don't let anyone ever talk you into giving it up, Mr. Wilkins. They had stopped fluttering around him. Several of them left. Little Job's daughter was one. Mr. Wilkins was still shaken, but he knew now what he would do. He would get back down to the chapel as quickly as the snow would let him, and he would take one more look at the picture, just to make certain. Then he would call the sheriff. When Mr. Wilkins started down the road, the gravel was greased with snow. He had to walk slowly, digging his heels in. He saw a stout branch hanging from an aspen, pulled it loose, stripped it of twigs, and went on down the hill, using it as a staff. The staff was a great aid. The falling snow was dizzying, and coupled with the slippery descent, it gave him an unbalanced sensation, as if he would tumble into sleep right there in the snow. The going was easier once he reached the gulch. He paused, and taking off his hat, raised his face to the sky. The snowflakes were tiny cool pats on his eyelids, fairy puppy dogs licking his cheeks. A fanciful thought for an old man. Leaning heavily on his stick, he opened his eyes. The snow fell from slate gray, coating everything but Little Balsam Creek, which still ran dead black through the white. Contrast. He had no excuse for not being remembered earlier that red hair photographs dark. He should have known the young woman immediately. But many people during the summers asked him about the gulch and the mines, and she had seemed no different from any other coming along on that lazy Sunday afternoon. She had known about Cardinal. He recollected now. He might have told her the story of the fake raid and the yellow taffeta curtain, stained brown. It was almost a legend. He would have attached no importance to the telling. He drooped over the stick while the little fairy-pats of snow went down his neck and turned soggy inside his collar. There was no reason to hurry. If he had collected his wits two days ago, Jock would still be alive. A week ago, and Cassidy would not have had to die. His shoulders became so blanketed that when Mr. Wilkins finally moved, a soft crust slid away, as it did from the branches of the Ponderosas. Midway between his house and the chapel he stopped. The sign, Charity Chapel, was almost obliterated by the wet casing of snow. Even the Rollins did not appear ruinous. A beautiful world, he sighed. I have loved, O Lord, the beauty of thine house and the place where thy glory dwelleth. He liked remembering that Gopher Gulch had always been the place where the glory dwelt. Mr. Wilkins could fight off sleep no longer. He dragged himself to the chapel, leaving a small trowel behind each foot in the snow. Juicy Parker's white dog bounded up to him, barking a greeting. He was too sleepy to speak. As soon as he had looked at the picture, he would go straight to his house and to bed. He pushed open the door. The organ was still there. They would take it away tomorrow. The stick fell from his hand. The little room was cold. End of chapter 12